This content is issued by Zeus Capital Limited, which is authorised and regulated in the United Kingdom by the Financial Conduct Authority, the designated investment business, and is a member firm of the London Stock Exchange. Nothing in this podcast should be viewed as investment advice. Listeners should consult an investment professional before making any decisions regarding topics mentioned in this podcast. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not of Zeus. Please note that participants in this podcast may have financial interests in the matters discussed. Hi, I'm Nick Searle, a member of the Zeus Equity Sales Team and host of A Different Perspective. Here we interview interesting characters from the world of business and finance and uncover a different perspective. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts or contact me at live at zeuscapital.co.uk. It's Thursday, the 9th of March. With me today, I have Mark Costa. Mark, along with his colleague Vishal, runs the J. O'Hambro UK Growth Fund. Mark and Vishal look to identify mispriced and undiscovered growth stocks. With a smaller company bias, the fund also contains stocks which have a high margin of safety but significant upside potential. Mark, welcome. Thanks, Nick. It's great to be here. Thanks very much for inviting me. Oh, my pleasure. Can we start with what first interested you in finance and the markets? Sure. Yeah, OK. I mean, I think like most people, when I was at school and early days of university didn't really necessarily have a clear and fixed idea of what I was going to get into. Uh, but like everyone else, um, you know, I had lots of jobs as a student, you know, fish and chip shop, factories, um, retail and so on. And uh, one of those was actually working in the filing department of a company called uh, Gelderman's, which is a, a US futures broker. And yep. so I worked down in the dingy basement there with you know, huge big filing cabinets, very dusty. Um, and but one day one of the guys the, the yellow jackets who was who worked there uh, didn't turn up for work on a Friday probably a bit hungover yeah. and uh, so they needed a few more people up on the exchange floor and uh, so I went with them just for the admin and it was just I was just fixed straight away just the whole sea of arms voices the noise the screens the shouting it was just intoxicating basically and that really I didn't necessarily think about it at the time, but it had a really lasting impression on me about about that buzz and that adrenaline that exuded from the floor, really. And so that that definitely stuck with me. Um, you know, finished my time at university, and uh, when I came to graduate in 1990, you know, with slap bang in the middle of a recession. So yeah. you know, there's, there's weren't the jobs around. I tried to get jobs at Citigroup and a few other places. You know, I remember, and simply just like quite a lot of uh, graduates at the time, just had a wall of rejection letters on my on my notice board really um but uh one of the companies that that were very kind enough to take me on as a graduate trainee um, was a company called quick corporation and they were actually a subsidiary of the nikkei group yeah and if you think back to the early 90s i mean japan was going to take over the world wasn't it I mean, yep. the nikkei index itself was trading at thirty-five thousand or whatever it was and uh so they had a sea of money around and they had a 100% market share in the Japanese equity market. Um, so they had the fixed, you know, the done terminals with the screens, if you remember. Re- really, like, they're like the Japanese version of Topic. If you mm-hmm. remember the old Topic screens, mm-hmm. that also had a, owned by the London Stock Exchange that had the share price information that we, that we traded on at the time. And they were looking to break into that UK equity market. And so part of my responsibilities as the graduate trainee there, we, we did this big research project what I think we called it a topic buster, I think mm-hmm. we called it. Um, and so my job was to go off, I understand the UK equity market, understand the participants in it, um, meet a lot of practitioners, philosophers, um, who worked in the industry. And so I went around to interview them, what would you want from a service, what don't you like about topic, 
um, understood the job a bit more. And it was just fascinating for me. And I thought, well, I'm on the, the wrong side of the fence here. Um, and so I thought, well, you know, this it looks a lot better than the job I'm in. And uh, by then the Nikkei had started to topple a bit. The Japanese were more interested in sort of saving their bacon back mm-hmm. home in Tokyo. And so it just logically came to to, to be the right time. So um, you know, very fortunately, one of our, the people I had interviewed for that time period um, had an opening as a you know, trainee investment analyst. And that was at uh, Clerical Medical Investment Group. So I moved there in 92. Um, and of course, you know, that was a real baptism of fire because yeah. you know, the UK was as out of favour as it is now. You know, people were queuing up around the block to put the boot in. The UK's finished as a international growth market, centre of finance, you know, high unemployment, high inflation, conservatives in disarray. I mean... I mean, very similar to now. <laughs> I mean, the parallels are striking, frankly, yeah. when you think about it. And and um, so, and, you know, of course, when you're the trainee, you get given all the, the boring sectors, you know, the dodgy ones that no one else wants, so paper and packaging. Yep. Um, food retail, uh, house builders, which was a real lesson in operational gearing and how quickly companies can can go bust. Um, but they also gave me what was what became the media sector. Uh, it was an odd, odd job of it was, I think it was agencies, it was um, publishing companies and a few other companies. But uh, because I had some knowledge of the the information market, Reuters was one of the companies that traded there, so they thought that'd be a good place for me to start as well. But one of the lessons I do remember from that from house building and other areas is, you know, the market was falling consistently all day long. And then we came out the ERM, yep. if you remember. And yeah, that was very well. A, it's extraordinary day, as I'm, yeah. sure you, as I'm sure you recall. So, so it's a very interesting sort of early journey, if you like, to get me there uh, to in, onto the UK equity market. And I was tremendously privileged to work with some amazing people there. When I look back at it now, the, the training the time, the support they were able to, to give us. I mean, there's some very well-known UK fund managers that, who still to this day are mm. sort of schooled at clerical medical. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of that was down to to our head of UK, uh, Paul Williams, a lovely guy. He always had time for people, but he trained, he trained you properly in markets, I think. And, you know, he was, he, w- he looked for the detail, he looked for consistency. Um, he didn't mind if you were wrong, as long as you were honest as long as you learn from your mistakes. Um, and he wanted to to find original ideas. But crucially, I think he, the one thing I think he really taught me was learning that you know, knowledge of the fundamentals is just one important element of the stock market. What really matters is knowing and understanding what is embedded in the, pr- in the share price. Mm-hmm. And I, think, I do think there's a lot of focus on knowledge being applied to the fundamentals and often the skill of the job is to take those that knowledge and fundamentals, but also to the, the sort of softer side of it, if like understanding what is discounted in the price of an equity. And that's always stuck with me as part of our process and philosophy. And then from Clerical Medical, where did you move to next? Well, at Clerical Medical, I was, um, I mean, I've got, we, one of the great things there as well, we did get responsibilities very early. Um, so, I mean, I was only 26 when I got uh, given what was called then the Clerical clerical pedigree growth trust um, became the UK growth fund so I you know, had fund management responsibilities relatively early um, in the mid 90s um, you know, that managed to produce some some uh, fortunately some very very strong numbers and um, it was on the back of those numbers that I got a phone call from from Nicola Pease um, who was 
studying at a new venture, uh, which was Joe Hambro Capital Management, and she and I was thrilled to be invited to uh, become one of the original fund managers and a, and a partner in the business in 2001. And so we launched the business in 2001. Um, again, that was a real baptism for fire because um, you know we had uh, we were in a bear market, rampant bear market. Mm-hmm. So people said, "Well, Costa, who are you? Don't know who yeah. you are. Who's Joe Hambro?" Never heard of you, because we hadn't just started. Um, And by the way, it's a bear market. And not only that, we had, um, I don't remember, Newstar. Yes. You know, who were the John Duffield startup. You know, his pockets flush with the Jupiter money. And they were emblazoned on boards all everywhere. And people were saying, well, look, if we're going to buy UK equities, we're going to buy this new Newstar, newfangled Newstar product. And... So, you know, it was a definitely a damp squib of a launch, for sure. Um, but it turned out to be the best thing that happened to the business because we did manage to get in front of a few people. Um, we got on people's radar and we were able to go away quietly, develop a bit of a track record. And when the markets turned in 2003, um, you know, that's when the fund and, the, fund and the, uh, the company really started to take off. And then how long have you been working with Fish for? Uh, Vish, um, so I followed Nicola's hiring philosophy, which is find and identify exceptional people and then harangue them until you, they come and yeah. join you. So rather than just hire someone for the sake of looking good on the presentation pack, um, you know, w- w- once Alex and myself, Alex Savidis, yeah. who's also you know, a really successful fund manager of the Dynamic Fund at, UK, at uh, Hambro as well, um, once we'd identified Vishal, we just didn't want to compromise so it took us two years to get him over the line um from 2005 initial conversations to him joining in early 2007 i think it was um and he's been putting up with me ever since uh, frankly so i mean you've worked together for a very long time we have yeah no it's it it's a great team because you know we have sort of different skill sets if you like um but they're married together really well but the, but different skill sets but the same underlying investment philosophy and then if we move on to that philosophy, you know, what do you class as undiscovered and mispriced growth? Yeah, so I mean, what we like to look for is you know, strong and exciting growth companies without having to pay the multiple for them. And you know, going back to the, 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 the valuation uh, point I made earlier and, and what's embedded in the set of expectations. So we look to identify companies you know, with a high margin of safety if we're wrong, but significant upside optionality if we're right. So in other words, what we're not doing is investing in the high PE uh, story stocks, the fans' favourites of the day. Often we find the best undiscovered mispriced growth companies come from misperception, from history, or from a change in, in circumstance. So stock, stocks are often priced for their history rather than the future, mm-hmm. but industries can go through very strong fundamental change, management change, um, structural change, technology-driven change, supply-side change. So great businesses can come out of of a previously less exciting industry. It could be a great stock in a ma- sector which, from a macro perspective, just happens to be wildly out of favour. It could be, and this is often a, a very fertile area for Vision myself, um, is companies that go for a very heavy investment phase. So they are um, artificially, you know, the profits are artificially suppressed, um, perhaps the cash flow, you know, because they're investing to create a long-term platform for durable growth. And often the stock market throws its toys out the prams when companies take numbers down 
because mm-hmm. they're investing for the long-term benefit of the franchise and for stakeholders. And often that's where some fantastic opportunities come from. I mean, what would be your average holding time for a, for a stock? Well, average holding time is comfortably more than three years. Um, I mean, we've held stocks in the fund for 10, 15, 10, 15 years. Um, the only reason the average is perhaps nearer three to four is because sometimes we have stocks that get taken over, yeah. um, particularly in the UK small cap area of the world where, where there's you get some fantastic assets that trade at, as you want, you know, you know, working at markets as well, that they just trade at some very silly prices. And that's why they, it's been a feasting ground for private equity, these excellent UK assets. Um, so there are some stocks that have been there for a decade, decades plus. We look to take very long-term uh, views. Sometimes those fundamentals can change, and so you have to change your decision. Sometimes you get things, frankly, wrong, mm-hmm. um, and you have to recognise that and put your hand up. And sometimes um, yeah, the investment thesis is, in, is invalidated and all gets taken over. And then... You know, Sector completely agnostic. How do you how do you how do you find these ideas? Yes, yeah, so um, it's, we're, we're very much bottom up stock picking product. So we've got no skill set or credibility when it comes to the macro. Um, we have a view, of course, but there's mm-hmm. no reason why you should listen to it. You know, um, so we we bottom up fundamentals is what we look for, and multi cap. So we were looking small cap, mid and large. And I think the very few products actually still do that really in the in the real. Yeah. In, in the real sense of the word. And you actually need different skill sets across different level of market capitalization. Um, at the smaller end, it's just finding and identifying the company and understanding what it does actually can be a big advantage because of just the sheer lack of coverage and lack of interest in, in UK small caps. You can find some absolutely unpolished gems, as, as, as you know, in that part of the market. The mid-cap which area, which is ironically probably the area that's become the most competitive, um, been a very fertile area for us, um, and you know we still are, have got a number of investments there. And, large, and the further you go up on the large cap side of things, that is more about a little bit, little bit more macro influence, but a lot more about what is really discounted in the stock price and what is your edge, because you're not going to out-analyze someone mm-hmm. on a FTSE 100 company, yep. for example. Um, so, so yeah, we we, we 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 often find though that we get a lot of what we call cross-fertilization. So. What we learn from small caps can be very useful in helping us identify threats and you know potential uh, areas of disruption towards lar- the larger names, and vice versa. You know, if a large cap company is going to move into a small cap space, well, it could be they're going to be sleeping with elephants, mm-hmm. and there's some danger ahead, or it could mean they're an acquisition target, of course. Yep. So what we find with covering the whole market cap spectrum is it gives exposes us to different information sources than perhaps if you just dedicated to one area of the marketplace. Um, I guess having that holistic view gives you greater information on each of the, the three sections of market cap, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, I, th- I think it can give you different... Um, uh, if I'll give you an example, you know, so, so like I remember a company, I don't know if you remember it, a company called Hamwor- Hamworthy, and the reason I mentioned that was just, ex- just to sort of bring it to life a bit, really, but... So, you know, covered large cap, went to see um, company called, you know, large cap company called Carnival Cruises. Mm-hmm. And the, they had some downgrades to the numbers because there was some new U.S. Coast Guard ballast water legislation yep. coming in. And that's just pure cost. It's because one of the biggest transferring of invasive species from one ecosystem to another 
is through ballast water because you think about it, you're filling your boat up in one place and emptying uh, yep. in another, right? And so they had these new rules on, on filtering and ballast water content. And of course, in terms of the FTSE 100 company, that was people just thought, oh, well, that's just another cost of doing business for Carnival, so they were big downgrades. But for us, we thought, myself um, and Vish and Alex, we went off and looking for companies that actually could benefit from their investment wave in ballast water tanks infiltration systems. And that's exactly what Hamworthy had. They had a world-class position in it. They'd been investing heavily for this opportunity. That had been delayed, so the stock market had priced it at a very depressed price. But they had one of the best products out there. And they, they, they had strong growth, and eventually they got bought by a company called Wartzilla from Europe. And then um, you're one of the sort of top holdings of the fund currently. Uh, well, it's a real eclectic mix. I mean, we've got some fantastic and dynamic uh, technology businesses like uh, FD Tech, um, like Gresham, te- uh, Gresham Technologies. Um, we've got a few FTSE 100 companies, Standard Chartered, mm-hmm. uh, Rolls Royce. Um, so, yeah, a number of different you know, areas. With, but the, the, the common thread is undiscovered mis- mi- mispriced growth. And does that mean that you use brokers a lot? Do you do your own research? How, d- how do you get under into the weeds of these undiscovered gems? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so, we use bro- we don't use brokers research for idea generation. What we do what we do find brokers very useful for is sounding boards to the what is discounted in the price yes. element because they're speaking to a lot of other m- practitioners with different sets of views and different time screens. And so, underst- you know, if you know you're talking about a particular company and twelve investors have told you you know the CEO is a muppet, mm-hmm. then you know the CEO is a muppet. It's in the price kind yeah. of kind of thing. Yeah. And so. Um, everyone's avoiding it, or everyone's talking about it, or reverse broking it, for example. So, so brokers are extraordinarily useful for that. I mean, sometimes the research, but, but in the main, not. We so we do our own research, do our own modelling on the companies yes. that we have. But what we try and do is use a lot of non-stop market sources. So we go to a lot of trade shows, exhibitions, fairs, see a lot of private companies, suppliers, etc. And you'd be amazed how there's often a disconnect between. Um, what an industry thinks of itself and its prospects and the best companies within that industry and what the stock market is is pricing in. Um, so we find that's a really useful source of information. Um, I mean, a good example, I was at Mo- Mobile World Congress in Barcelona last week, for yeah. example, and the telecoms industry, you know, is v- very depressed multiples at the moment. People think they're just dumb boxes, dumb pipes, and past ways of capex have not been monetized and that's what the stock market firmly believes yes. actually what we discovered uh was there seems to be genuine kernels of evidence that there is a compelling monetization case for 5g for example and the companies are getting a real return on investment by network slicing private networks and the internet of things and so could there be a credible monetization story that the stock market is looking in the completely wrong direction. Now, I'm not saying there is because we haven't finished the work on that yet, but but that's how the germs of ideas come from. I mean, the second area is just being around the market a long time. You know, you see companies come and go. You meet a lot of companies. But ultimately, the best form of research is is shoe leather. So going Mm -hmm. to see a company, um, going to its place of operation, meeting the people below the management team. So we don't want just invest in business because someone's come to the office flipped over a presentation pack and told yeah. us what a great business they've got. Yeah. We want to see it for ourselves, you know, test the vibrancy of that culture, look at how well invested is this business, does the CEO know the, everyone's name, you know, and, you know, lots of things, little, li- little things, what are the cars in the car park, you know, you know all the 
stuff really yeah. on the on the company visits that that help the little the softer things that help you is this a good business is the philosophy in the right place and is the culture there so it's really like being a detective i suppose in a way uh, or putting the, uh, putting uh, things uh, the yeah, jigsaw uh, together. I suppose it is. I mean, it is. You are putting, you you are putting a jigsaw together, but you're never going to have all of the pieces. Yes. To, 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 yeah. So you have to make inferences about yeah. what pieces go where. So I guess you make some of your pieces that are missing to make the whole story. Yes. Yeah. yeah I, th- I think that's a good way of describing it. Actually. Yeah. Because if you wait for all the pieces of the jigsaw to then fall into place, the, the price may have moved. the share price has already got there, right? Yeah. So you know you have to accept there's uncertainties in life and. And you have to make, you know, it's, it's almost weighted average probability. Yeah. Um, and, you know, experience helps on that front. But you have to, un- there all will be, un- you know, unintended outcomes. And, and, and things do happen that you could not have reasonably inf- expected, both good and bad. Um, because I think, I think it, when I look back at, say, some of the stocks have done fabulously well for us or, or fabulously badly for us, um, you know, sometimes there are, there are th- there's always a new ways to lose money in the stock market, yes. basically. Yeah. And um, you know, I mean, very sadly, there's a you know, company called uh, this mo- just this morning called called One Disco mm-hmm. uh, that looks like it's been, um, well, fr- quite frankly, a fraud, right? And um, that could co- end up costing investors a lot of money. But you know, I remember we had one in well, it was at Clerical Medical, 1999 or 2000, can't recall exactly. A company called Versailles Group, and one of the, the reasons why that one drew to my mind this morning when I was reading the One Disco R&S was because that also had um, a unique, um, very similar characteristics in the sense that the stock was suspended at or near an all-time relative high. Yeah. Normally these frauds, or these, these ones that, that smell a bit, if you like, there's normally some footprints in the snow. There's normally a few insiders that are getting out of this stock. And you know, the, the, the share price gives you a clue. Maybe there's something on going on here I don't quite know or understand, and maybe we should in- investigate that more thoroughly we didn't see that um, in those two cases but you learn from that um, so we always try to analyze our mistakes and learn from them but I think we also try to analyze our successes as mm-hmm. well because I think there's a tendency in this industry to overanalyze your mistakes and underanalyze your successes and we have to recognize that sometimes you can get a stock right but for the wrong reasons um, you know, yep. just like you can be unlucky in a stock as yeah. well, as well as poor analysis yeah. or you missed something. You sometimes you can your thesis was A, but the stock price went up a lot, but that was for B. And so you can actually learn but making money rather than learn from losing money, and that can often be a valuable skill. And that's so. Therefore, does that mean you have a sort of targeted sell discipline, or how do how do you come to choosing that that position no longer has a place in the portfolio? Yeah, um, great question. I mean, we, we don't have a what we what we call it, and I think the best way to approach it is we call it clean piece of paper approach. So you know, have you? We are agnostic to whether we own the stock for six weeks or six years, or even longer. You know, what matters is knowing and understanding the fundamentals as we do today. Would you buy that stock today at today's prices? Mm-hmm. If you didn't own it, would you buy it today? Is it better than what you've already got in the portfolio? Yeah. So to try and avoid in- incumbency bias, yes. To try and avoid, um, you know, a rolling bull story. Yep. You know, what was the original reason you bought it for? That's the thesis. Is that thesis still valid or not? So when you when you have a company with a profit warning, it's horrible feeling. It happens all the time. Uh, it's an inevitable part of the job. You know, there's there's different profit warnings. You know, for different things. There's there's temporary 
setbacks that don't affect the long-term structural value of a business. Mm. And there's things that really do have a long-term impact in terms of you know, losing market share or technology-driven change or just a very poor acquisition or mistake or something like that. So distinguishing between is the thesis valid or invalid now on the back of this information is really a critical part. And that's where we think taking that step back, taking the emotion out of the selling, yeah. actually. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things, but going back to, to, to my... Um, head of UK at Clerical, Paul Williams, always tell me is that, you know, temperament is more highly valued in stock markets than, than intelligence. And I, you know, I really believe that's, that's true. You need to take the emotion out of the process. And one of the reasons, or, or one of the ways we do that with our selling is not just to look at what the share price does after we sold it, but to look at it, it's minimising our opportunity cost of capital. Yes. So it can actually be a great sell if the stock goes up 30% after you've sold it, if you put it into something that goes up by more than 30%, yeah. for example, or something that goes up by 30% but for a lower, lower level of risk. Because yeah. either way, we've improved the risk-return integrity of the portfolio. And that's what this job is all about. It's capital allocation and um, ensuring por- you know, proper portfolio construction um, and make sure you maximise the value of the ideas you get right but minimise the damage of the ones that you get wrong. That makes a lot of sense. And then if we do turn to the macro a little bit, hmm. um, obviously you can we can all read the data and obviously people are concerned about a recession, but where where do you see pockets of, of growth for the UK, if there is any? Well, I mean, when set against share prices and what the market is discounting, going back to that again, I mean, the opportunities in the UK right now are absolutely extraordinary. I mean, I think the generational opportunities, similar to just after we came out of the ERM. Yeah. So when we mentioned then that the sentiment in the UK could not have been worse then, after that, we came out of the year and the, U- the market went on the multi-decade bull run of, I think, about 280%. And if you think about where the UK is today, I mean, it's a shopping list of absolutely dire proportions, if you think about it. I mean, consumer confidence is at a 50-year low. Yep. Um, business confidence is at a 30-year low. Um, but just going back to the consumer confidence, you, th- you think about it now. That, that's implying consumer confidence in the UK is worse than at the height of COVID, where we didn't know yeah. if the uh, disease was going to take over the world. I mean, worse than the, the great financial crisis. Correct. We didn't know the financial infrastructure yeah. was going to fall apart. But it's also worse than the a- 1980s, when we had double-digit unemployment, double-digit inflation. Interest. And double-digit interest rates. Yes, yeah, correct. But people were physically writing on the streets. Yeah. You know, Hansworth, Toxteth. Yeah. Um, you know, Notting Hill and so on. So, I mean, is it really worse than that? I mean, you know, there's 200 billion of excess savings out there still, record high employment in the UK. So there's a big disconnect between expectations and reality in the UK there. Um, you know, the FTSE 250 just had its worst year on record since the index, on relative terms, since the index was constructed in 1985. UK um, is the world's favourite underweight. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, international yeah. investors have abandoned UK. Yeah. But actually, so have domestic investors. So, you know, what we've seen with work from Andre Partners and what we've seen coming out of this LDI crisis yeah. is that long-term domestic investors, like pension funds, for example, own less than 4% of the UK equity market. It's crazy. I mean, when, when I started my career, that, was, that number was 55%. So I mean, it, it begs the question, who is left to sell the UK? And, yeah. you know, and that being the case that I think people often forget that the best money, you know, you don't need things to go from terrible to good to make money. You just need from bad to less bad 
to, to reasonable, can act, that journey can actually lead to very significant re-ratings and, and opportunity sets. So I think you, sentiment in the UK is dire. And that's great because there is an opportunity set out there that is genera- for generational returns. So what, what flicks the switch on that sentiment? What would you look for to, to give you confidence that there are green shoots or that the, the market is beginning to turn? Well, if you just touch on the macro first, then I'll come on to the, to the market itself. I mean, look, obviously we've had the, the Northern Ireland Agreement um, recently, which is quite, sin- quite significant potentially because the biggest, the biggest um, holdback to business investment is the uncertainty. So you start to take away the uncertainty, you start to improve the relationship with Europe. You know, we can go back in the Horizon R&D programme, for example, there might be more cooperation in other areas. We're having the Solvency II reforms as well. And that will allow capital to come back more into long-term projects and and investment as well. So these things are important little staging posts. Actually, the UK economy has been more resilient than people think anyway. If you look at the PMIs, you look at growth, some of the stats out just just this morning. And we've already mentioned the excess savings and and so on. Um, So so from a UK perspective, that things actually are nowhere near as bad as they are, I think... um, where the market is, is, is suggesting. Okay, and then you know, what's your view on sort of household budgets? If you know interest rates, you know, that's so again, what's your view on interest rates? I guess in the short term. Um, yeah, I mean, interest rates. I'd, I'd, I have less of an informed view on. I mean, just in terms of household budgets, it's interesting that you know the pandemic savings haven't been drawn down. You know, the first monthly drawdown was last month in January, and that was only, I say, only but two billion yeah. roughly from the 200 billion that, that's out there. So I think people have a bigger war chest than you might think. Now, that how quickly that gets eroded is, is a different Yeah, I guess thing, also because well, with 90% fixed rate mortgages, if mm. on a two-year basis they tend to be rolling off, and mm. you know, obviously we all know that um, mortgage rates are going up. So if we've spoken about green shoots um, and pension funds are removing themselves from UK mm. stock market, what's the catalyst to, 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 to have this change? What, what, what starts the, the recovery? Mm. Yeah, um, and people often ask me that, and it, it's, it's a very valid question. Um, I think, like I said, first of all, things only have to get less bad to, to attract interest, and they can, the underlying fundamentals are actually better than people perceive, and that's important because that gets people interested. But I think, more importantly, because you've got such you know, outstanding businesses, often global leaders trading mm-hmm. at very substantial discounts, what we call the, the misfortune to be quoted in the UK discount, um, it starts to attract external capital. So if the stock market doesn't correct it itself, it's often corrected by corporates or by private equity. Through, through takeouts? And well, yes. And I mean, there, there's $55 billion of, of takeovers in the UK last year. I think a survey by Numis uh, highlighted the UK as the most attractive market by far for future private equity targets. I don't think it's any coincidence, since we've seen some a little bit of stability in the funding markets, that M&A has started to return with a vengeance um, as well. We've seen very, very substantial director buying in the UK equity market as well. I mean, mm-hmm. our fund alone had more than 100, and 100 individual director share purchases last year. We're into double digits already so far this year. So directors are voting with their, by putting their hands in the pockets as well, which is always an important sign across a number of industries. I mentioned earlier about the Solvency II reforms, and the, which means that long-term capital is unlocked so people can invest back instead of squirreling the money away in bonds to asset match the liabilities they can actually invest in more productive uh, generative assets 
So, you know, the UK's had a productivity problem for a long time because of a lack of investment. If we see clearer rules and more capital is freed up, that will generate this self-sustaining uh, activity. And we mentioned about the pension funds earlier as well. Well, again, you know, the, the, the data that I've seen suggests that, you know, if they just simply move back to a normal allocation in UK equities, which will take a while, um, but let's say it does happen in the medium term, that's 300 billion that could come yeah. back into the UK equity market. And, you know, for a market cap of 2.5 trillion, that's a, you know, we all know prices are set mm -hmm. by the marginal buyer or the marginal seller. Yeah. Um, that can have a real, 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 real impact. So I think there's a lot of ways the price could correct. And there's nothing that begets more interest than rising markets, right? So if the market starts to go up and, yep. you know, US maybe has the US peak, I don't know that's for other people to talk about as a stock market as a percentage of GDP. But, you know, in the global indices, if UK starts doing well, that attracts more capital. It's um, very self-fulfilling, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, so it can become self-fulfilling as well. So I think there's a lot of things that could, could go right for the UK. And the point is you only need one or, you know, a little bit of those to go right for a lot of money to be made given the, the starting point of, of equity prices. So I guess that fits very well into your fund, doesn't it? Mispriced, undiscovered assets. I mean... Well, that's what we like to, you know. I mean, and, and look, we, we try and do what we say on the tin. I mean, the other fund is, uh, we are, um, got very strong growth, but we're, the fund's average profile is far cheaper than the market and we've got yeah. far stronger balance sheets in the market. Yeah. Which is important. You, know, you have to be able to have the ability to continue to invest in capex in ip and people systems and infrastructure to create that growth and, and and drive value and to allow your your company to be the master of their own destiny as well with that exactly strong exactly right and that's that's a critical point that yes you're right now as my regular listeners will know i'd like to close with three questions mark i'll take one at a time if that's okay with you sure your greatest inspiration or mentor um well I, i'm going to take two if i may because um because i've got well i, I say i've got two two dads because I mean, I have in a sense because I've got, you know, my natural biological father. Uh, then my, my parents divorced um, when I was quite a young age and mm -hmm. my other uh, father then, then brought me up. And I'd like to think I took, you know, m my biological father, he, um, you know, I can't even change uh, a plug. Yeah. Right? He can take an aircraft engine apart and put it all back together yeah. quite literally. And he taught himself how to do that in the RF at a very young age. And traveled the world on the back of that knowledge um when he had prostate cancer and we were talking about it he, he'd been we worked out literally wrote it on the back of a, a beer mat uh, he'd been to 110 countries around the world wow you know so travel inspiration and hard work you know is what i took f f from that and then um my, my stepdad who brought who brought me up um who i call my father as well as i mentioned and um you know he his father had died when he was 15 so he had to become uh, the man of the house at a very early age, go to work very early. And he, he trained himself as a chemist. He worked at Tate and Lyle, actually, I think it was, in the East End. And, um, but he was allergic to certain chemicals. Mm -hmm. So he literally came out in blisters and everything. And so he couldn't pursue his passion as a chemist. So he had to completely retrain himself. And he did that in, in IT and became a very successful in the very early days when... Uh, IT was really taking off in the 70s and 80s. So, yeah, the ability to hard work but take some th things on the chin and redirect yourself to learn a completely new skill, which I think particularly in today's world, you know, I mean, my daughter, she's probably going to have to, you know, her generation will probably have to have two or three different careers. Yes, yeah. So the, the ability to respond to change, even if it's adverse change, but make something positive out of it, I think there's a lot of lessons to be drawn from that. No, two very worthy inspirations. 
And now probably the question that I've been looking forward to the most with you, Mark, because I know you're a very avid reader. Hmm. Uh, a book which has inspired you or books which have <laughs> inspired you? Well, I've got, I mean, um, I've, got, I've got a few to talk about. I mean, I wouldn't say it's so much um, inspired, but, but uh, helped shape some of my thinking yeah. in certain areas, yeah. I think. Like, I know you're a very avid reader as, as well, Nick, and we've often shared ideas. Um, but a couple, perhaps just to mention, and a couple that do influence you know, my lines of thought at the moment in, the, in terms of the stock market yeah. and help, because I do believe looking at things well outside the stock market really does help your clarity of vision, gives you inspiration and different ideas. So I think The 48 Laws of Power by Robert Greene, a uh, fascinating book because it covers you know, philosophy, leadership. Um, it covers, you know, it helps identify people who are driven. It helps identify sociopaths, helps you identify, you know, in this industry, we, well, we're very privileged, right? Because Completely. Well, we have fantastic access to talented individuals, CEOs who give us their time. And, you know, our job is then to allocate that capital to the best of those opportunities on, on behalf of our investors. And, you know, it's an amazing uh, opportunity set. And it's almost the opposite. I know you, you did a fantastic podcast with, with uh, William Green. And, he, you know, he's investing. He's spending time with successful investors and learn, taking the lessons from yeah. them. But actually, in this job, we're on the other side of the fence. We can sit from CEOs and inspirational business leaders and learn from them as well. So it's a very, um, you know, really nice position to be in but this book I think helped me un un understand some of the traits of successful people but also what to look out for in unsuccessful people yes. but also some certain philosophies in life so I think it's a real uh, you know one to go back to because it's, it's a bite-sized read you can go back in and, mm -hmm. in, a, in and out in terms of stuff that helps your mental thinking I mean on that on that kind of thing like black box thinking um, mm -hmm. by Matthew Syed or, or the intelligence trap by David Robson both, um, you know, how to avoid cognitive errors in real-world terms, not just from, from the laboratory, um, the, the, the unintended consequences, and how basically intelligent people can make the worst mistakes and reinforce and double down on those mistakes. And because they're the best, at the, they're talking their way out of those problems as well. So I find that is really helpful to try and avoid, try and avoid those errors, knowing about them, is one thing making sure you don't do them is another of course and that's one of the errors as well you think if, if you're well if you, if you have awareness of these things that you won't do it yourself and actually that can be a very dangerous thing so i think they're very put together in a nice readable digestible way with some good examples uh, that i found really really well to absorb um in terms of current events i think the avoidable war by kevin rudd you know the, the talking about the relationship between the us and and, and china and I don't think he's a much better qualified guy to do it, really. Um, you know, he's fluent in Chinese. He's lived out in China. I think he had a Chinese wife. Could be wrong with that, but I know he lived yeah. out there for quite a long time. And, of course, he was the Prime Minister of Australia. So he had first-hand experience in dealing with China mm -hmm. and, of course, the US at the very highest level. Yeah. So I think his insights into China, the thinking behind Z, whether he's likely to do it, and actually some... A number of foibles about the Chinese economy that, that, frankly, before reading that book, I wasn't simply aware. Like, um, you know, the 20% 20, 20 graduate unemployment in China, for example. You know, they spend 10% of their GDP on defence budget. <laughs> you know, how he's, he's been very successful politically in crushing his enemies, but he's got a lot of enemies elsewhere. Yeah. Um, he's got a lot of enemies in the army, for example, because he's put all the military spending 
in the Navy, in the Navy and, no, and, and ostracised a lot of the uh, some very successful uh, army generals, for example. And and we've seen with COVID recently that you know some of his population is also um, perhaps getting a little bit disaffected. So he covers all of those ground in a very relevant way. And we all know that if you know China invites to Taiwan with the impact on the semiconductor yep. industry and yep. and everything else, that would be a so we have to, you know, I think we have to have a view on the likelihood of that and the implications of that. And that book, I think, really distills it in a, in a fantastic way. And then on the biology side, and I say biology because I've, I think, again, trying to learn from disciplines outside of the stock market. And really, you know, the market is almost a fractal network in its own, you know, it's a complex, yeah. evolving beast. It's efficient until the point it isn't. You know, it can break down. It's a it's a very fragile ecosystem, and there are opportunities from that, but there are you know pitfalls from that as well. And so, uh, Entangled Life by Merlin Sheldrake is a fascinating study on on fungus actually, um, and about how critical they are to life, to ecosystems. Nothing in this world could exist yep. without them. Um, you know, there's ten times more species of fungi than there are plants in the world. And all the plants rely on them, but what they can do in terms of how they biodegrade, how they digest things, um, you know, they are chemicals, life, life-saving treatments, the mind-altering, mind-altering, yeah. yeah. you know, some of the best chemical compounds, life-saving things have come from that. And I think it helps you not underestimate the small parts of a network but are just as valuable as the large, the dominant ones. I've just finished Tim Spector's uh, food, food for Life. Oh, it yes. talks about gut health. Yes, and fungi and mushrooms play a phenomenal part in, yeah. in your gut health, I which obviously your microbiome sort of sorts out your your immune system, and and actually, hopefully, and science is showing that it that it tries to stop disease. So yeah, know, okay, that's I'll, I'll, I'll have to I'll have to take that one for me afterwards. Yeah, <laughs> and I'll, I'll, I'll read that because and th- th- there's another one on a on a very uh, alloyed though. It's called the, the Sea Is Not Made of Water by Adam Nicholson, and that looks at what he essentially does here. I mean, he's got very evocative prose. He's a really good writer uh, around nature, nature. But he creates an artificial rock pool, and then watches it evolve, and it becomes a real rock pool. Right? Yeah. And then he he sees just how one one tiny change can lead to a complete pivotal change in the whole e- the whole yeah. ecosystem. Yeah. You know, one dominant predator takes over. You get a monoculture very quickly. You know, going back to this e- evolving system, and I think from from all of this and the reason. I'm, talking about this is the stock the stock market is like that and if you look at you know we need diversity of participants in the market you know it's why people talk about why we should we need more women for managers yeah um it's why i think one of the things that worries me about market structure now with one with technology but also the people who are in this industry you know we were very privileged to join this industry when it, was, when it was more open to getting into it to Absolutely. be perfectly frank and you don't get the people, you know, now it's people with a strong degree from a very nice university with lots of letters after their name, and they give people very powerful software and very f- computers. So on one level, fabulously intelligent and very talented and driven, but a lot of similarity of thinking. Yes. And, you know... Well, surely the worry of AI, isn't it? Yes, yeah. Well, that's mean, another b- whole conversation. <laughs> but, but yeah, absolutely is. I mean, that's the, you know, what, what teaches the AI and exactly. you know, who, who is teaching yeah. them. And it's, it's a certain type of character that can, that can do that. Exactly right. And, but I think that's, there's that, that's happening a bit in the stock market as well. And that, is that healthy for a, a fully functioning, vibrant ecosystem and therefore efficient price formation? 
not necessarily. And so I think it helps me th- think about that visual, you know, we talk about that, those kind of things mm-hmm. and find opportunity sets from that, from those learnings, learnings from outside. Um, so that would be my ma- ma- main ones, really. That um, No, they sound fantastic. And I'm going to add a number of those to my list as well. <laughs> and then, Mark, what piece of advice would you give to a young person starting their career to follow in your footsteps? Well, I, I think it's a, combina- it's a combination of things, I think. Um, I think definitely reading. We talked about, you know, yeah. read, read, read widely. I think to get into the market, you have to, you have to trade. Um, it's even if it's small amounts, you have to learn the pain, For feel sure. the pain. You can't do it on a spreadsheet. You can't do it in theory. You have to. I mean, you sort of got to feel what losing ninety percent of your invested capital. Yeah, it's a horrible is. feeling. Yeah. Well, we've all done it, um, and but you know you really do adapt and evolve quickly when you feel that pain. And I think on on a related front, you know, learn games that help you teach you reflect reflexive skills as well. So. Um, not only they're great fun, but chess, backgammon, poker, you know, you learn, you have to respect your opponent, know who you're playing against, you have to learn when to attack, when yeah. to retrench, when to defend, yeah. you know, and um, and when an opportunity opens up, when to really go for it. And those are games that I think teach you, you know, all of those skills as well, as well as being, uh, being, being great fun. And I guess also you learn a lot about yourself with those three games as well. Well, you do, yeah, you do, and you, you learn, you, and patience as well, of course, yeah. is, is a really valuable skill. You know, you can be in a great position in those games, and and through impatience, you know, throw it all away, yeah. and you can do the same thing in the stock market. Yeah. Um, so I think maybe studying biology rather than some of the STEM subjects. Others, you know, it's probably the under underserved science. People doing physics and maths and everything, but you know, maybe I think biology will see a comeback in the next 20, 20 years, and and just just know a lot of people who. Or at work outside of the industry, I think. Yes. Um, yeah. I guess it's all a filter of information, isn't it? It's yeah. like reading. It's just the the more touch points they have, the more hopefully you, yeah. you get to understand what, what you're hearing and what you're learning yeah. about. Yeah. And, and just the last thing that I really wish I had done, um, I was advised by someone, you really, you really should do this when I was starting my career, and I didn't do it, and I wish I had, um, is write an investment diary because... You know, it's one thing looking back at the charts and the history, but it's another thing understanding the emotion you felt at the time yeah. and what you were really thinking at the time because, you know, memories are unreliable beasts and when you look back in history, you tend to revise it. Yes. You tend to think yeah. you knew more than you did. Well, as you were, history is written by the victors. Correct, yeah. And so if you had that to look or flip back on, you know, how you felt when there was a profit warning, how you felt when there was a takeover, how you felt when you made a big error or a mistake... Um, I think there's a lot to be learned from that, and yes, I wish I'd I wish I'd done that. So if someone starts out in their career and they are trading or they are they do move into long term investment, perhaps to to record those emotions to learn from them because I think they'd find that a very valuable uh, reference point. And then, Mark, how can listeners get in touch with you? Uh, well, through the the website at Joe Hambro, um, at Capital Management, or so you know we're we're, we're there in um, based in, in Haymarket. Um, you know, we've got a great marketing department and distribution department. Um, we're very investment-led uh, b- business with a very strong track record, and you know, we're all always delighted to have conversations with people. Fantastic, Mark. This has been great fun. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks very much. Nate. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Different Perspective, a Zeus podcast. If you'd like to feature on the podcast or get in touch, you can contact me on live at zeuscapital.co.uk. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.